This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is Thursday, February 11th, 2021, and I have two awesome guests with me today. I have Ignacio Contreras of Qualcomm and Andrew Martinick of Digital Trends. Hi, guys. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Andrew. So, Ignacio, I've got you on because Qualcomm just announced the new uh, modems, the X65 and X62, which are 5G modems, millimeter wave capable, and are basically your next generation of product. And I was really excited to see some of the numbers there. So I want to give you a chance to tell us what Qualcomm announced, and then we have some questions, right, Andrew? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So Inyasho, tell us a little bit about what Qualcomm announced this week and, uh, you know, what, what you think it'll bring to the table. Uh, yes, this week we announced what it's probably our biggest leap in terms of 5G products since we announced our first 5G solution about four years ago. So this is the Snapdragon X65 modem RF system. And when we talk about modem RF, not just modem, because the modem, the basement is just part of this. It's basically all the things that go from the main processor or the baseband to the antenna that have been updated and revamped, and that also, again, allow us to go into what will be the next phase of 5G. So the top line capabilities of these uh, products that we are announcing is, for the first time, support for 10 gigabits per second. So we are now approaching speeds that not just equal, but surpass what you can get from fiber, right, on many residential areas overall. So that's significantly increased, not just in speed, but also in capacity. And we can talk more about that later on. But also, this is the uh, first modem RF solution that also brings support for what's the newest specification of 5G, what's called 5G Release 16. Uh And what's meaningful about those specifications that basically those come to realize always the promise of 5G. If you recall, 5G has been developed from scratch, not just to power phones. Uh, unlike all other cellular transitions that we have with 2G, 3G, or 4G. It has been designed to support all kinds of things like PCs and robots and industrial applications and many others. So this second phase of uh, 5G specification release 16 that is supported on the Snapdragon X65 will make those uh, possible overall. And we have significant improvements as well, again, from the modern to antenna, uh, upgradability, so you can incorporate new uh, capabilities in the modern RF system uh, via software upgrades. So uh, that allows us to have a longer run in terms of the benefits that uh, OEMs and at the end operators and users at the end can get from their products as we are able to significantly enhance the capability of the devices uh, during the lifetime. So you're seeing this more as a modem that would be used in maybe laptops or kind of more of a standalone product because obviously your Snapdragon 888 solution has a built-in 5G modem now. So it seems it would be counterintuitive to add the X65 to that subsystem, correct? Well, we, we have always the option to uh, use these modem RF systems as discrete 
a standalone products like you might see for instance is the mobile hotspot but also we can incorporate them integrate them into our mobile platforms the one that power uh, all the key flagship android devices right it's not a separate chip per se it could also be added to a die for an existing soc correct or an upcoming soc right Absolutely, yes. The, the, the flexibility is there. But definitely, this is a modern RAF solution that we have designed to be able to power modern phones. So you, you will see this in premium phones, mm -hmm. but also you will see this in PCs, in fixed wireless access routers, basically provide internet not just to mobile devices, but also to homes and small businesses, in industrial IoT applications. Um, again, mobile hotspots, even on private 5G networks. So basically, this is a platform, as I said, is the most meaningful revamp in our products for 5G in quite a while because it has been designed not just for phones, but to many other applications that we'll, we will see uh, 5G going into. That makes sense. Andrew, do you have any uh, a hot question that's immediately jumping in your head right now? Well, I actually think that, I mean, you kind of hit it. The, the most important thing about this that's really funny is people are talking about how, oh, well, you don't need 10 gigabits per second in a phone, but in all of these other applications, you really do or really could in the future. Yes, and even, let's, I'll go in two parts, right? First on how, why you need 10 gigabits per second, let's say in your phone. Your, many times it's not about peak speeds and it's hard to even think today, maybe not in three years, but today, uh, which application will need a uh, 10 gigabit per second, right? We received the same questions when we announced uh, LTE with 100 megabit per second about 10 years ago, but now we feel that's fairly normal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but, but it's, it's not just about speeds, right? Uh, overall, when we talk about 10 gigabit per second or so, it's also capacity, right? And what that means in terms of the user experience. Uh, it's hard to imagine these things now in a, uh, again, in the pandemic times, but when we come out of this and we go back to uh, concerts and stadiums and trade shows, that's where you see the benefits of these capacity improvements. Uh, I mean, Miriam, Andrew, I'm pretty sure you know the pains, right? When we are on the halls of CES <laughs> yes, and so. you cannot uh -huh. get connected, you try Wi-Fi, you try a kind of a 4G and nothing connects overall because the network is overloaded. Yeah, yeah. This 10 gigabit per second, we are able to increase the overall capacity. So we are address those issues. So when you want to connect, again, when you're at CES or at a train station or these crowded environments where you need connectivity, yes, you, you might not get 10 gigabits per second, but you get sufficient connectivity. So you can just have a video call or download your email or, or so. Right. Uh, in, and it's also important on the upload speeds because many times when you have these cellular networks, the limitation is on the uplink. You can receive data, but sending your picture, let's say, or sending video, having a live broadcast when you are in a football game or you are in a concert, it's very difficult for today's networks. Yeah. Uh, but when you have more bandwidth, and again, the bandwidth that comes with the minimum wave with the 10 gigabits per second, that's also that the pain point that will be alleviated. So again, it's not about, okay, how do I use 10 gigabit per second, but also how I get the capacity just to have decent and good connectivity in this challenging environment? Well, I actually find that more interesting, but it's, of course, that was a very long answer because it requires that explanation. And it's so much easier to like market against 
speeds or even you'll see some of the carriers are starting to talk about latency, which is also very important, but it's not very sexy. Um, how how does like that boil down into marketing where you explain to people that they should be excited about enhanced capacity capabilities of 5G? Well, overall, what we are doing with 5G, right, is as we progress with 5G with this, again, ultra low latency, getting closer to one millisecond or these very high speeds, let's say multi gigabits per second, 10 gigabits per second capabilities. It, the way I think about this is that we are bringing the cloud and the device closer together. And basically, you have an interface between the device and the cloud, which is this wireless link. The better that is, the more that it looks like the cloud resides right in your phone or in your mobile device. So that's where you have uh, unlimited processing capabilities. And we are seeing that uh, the early signs of that for, with things like cloud gaming. For instance, I think it's no coincidence that those platforms are rising now at the same time that 5G is rising. Yeah. Of course, we see that mm -hmm. on unlimited storage. Uh, it's less and less important these days uh, how many uh, gigabytes of uh, storage you have in your phone or in your device because you can access those uh, through the cloud. Uh, very important for content creators, for example, when they have to, again, download and upload a lot of data in creating a new video and more significantly when you're collaborating with other people, right? Others in updating uh, that. So those kind of uh, applications that bring the cloud and the device very close together when you need that very high reliable low-latency interface between those parts of the system. That's, I think, where uh, that will enable a new set of applications that we have not thought yet. So yes, today it's faster downloads. I, I like it. I like to be able to download my movie before, again, going on the plane when we're able to do that back uh, in a few seconds. Uh, but uh, that bringing the cloud and the device very close together as one just system uh, that's what I think will enable a new set of applications. That, okay, probably I cannot imagine those, but I'm pretty sure that the thousands of developers that are out there uh, will be able to find very good use, uses for, again, those capabilities. So realistically, out there, when people are, uh, you know, using the X65 in a few, like, in a few months, years, whenever, on a device, what can they realistically expect to see? I mean, 10 gigabits is, of course, a kind of like a in the lab limit, right? And yes. the previous subsystem, I think the X55 was 7 gigabits, am I correct? 7.5, yes. 7.5. Yes. So we're basically, and now we're, we're seeing commercial networks like Verizon's reach peaks of 2.5 gigabits, maybe close to 3 in some places. So are we looking at just a kind of a linear extrapolation of what we should be able to see on millimeter wave networks? Because to be clear to my audience, we're talking millimeter wave here. This is obviously sub six is included in this modem, but this is not the kind of speeds you can achieve on sub six. So are we, are we expecting to maybe get to five gigabits per second in practical peak usage? The, I have a rule of thumb that I, in fact, I got from uh, Francesco really a very good colleague of mine here at Qualcomm that I, I think it works, right? When we're talking about sub-6 networks, uh, LTE and now 5G sub-6 networks, you can expect uh, to get in real-world conditions 20, 25% of the peak speeds. So if we're talking about one gigabit per second, uh, again, peak speeds on LTE or 5G, uh, then 200, 250 megabits per second, it's a reasonable number to expect. Uh, so that's right. a good rule of thumb. 
When we go with millimeter wave, uh, things get better, not just because you have more bandwidth overall, but also because of the beam forming capabilities. Since you have, again, many more small antennas in the device and you are able to create this kind of a lyser-like uh, connection that uh, links the base station with the antenna, that rule of thumb grows to about 50% or so, right? And I've been able to experience that uh, basically we, in, in at Qualcomm, we have a, a commercial a millimeter wave node there. Uh, so we're able to test yeah. at the very beginning, right? When we have just uh, 400, megahertz, 400 megahertz of bandwidth for millimeter wave, uh, where the peak speeds were roughly, again, maybe four uh, gigabits per second, I was realistically consistently getting 1.9 to um, gigabits per second in my phone, commercial phone, again, just testing there. Right. When we move into 7.5 gigabits per second peak speeds with the recent devices, I'm getting consistently uh, 3, 3.3, so again, roughly half. So going back to your point, in what we should expect now with 10 gigabits per second, I think we'll be reasonable to expect about 5 gigabits per second overall on real-world speeds. Again, 50% depends on the network, depends on conditions, how many people are around you is using the same network overall, but that should be our, a good uh, rule of thumb, 50% of the peak speeds that you see out there. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Andrew, I'm going to give it to you in a second. I have a, one more little thing I wanted to just mention for the audience that um, the fab process for this is four nanometers. Am I correct? Yes. That's insane. I mean, in a good way. Like, wow. Very wow. <laughs> yeah, right? To be honest, I, I'm, I'm less wowed uh, for those things. It's important. We're committed to be on the leading notes overall for our products, but you will realize that most of now the benefits that we get in terms of the uh, performance or battery life, it's coming from many other parts as well of the system design. Again, these all these things from the modem to antenna, right? Let me give you a few examples. Uh, one of the things that we introduced uh, this week as well is this AI enhanced uh, antenna tuner, right? We call it signal boost. Mm -hmm. What that means? It's when you are using your device, right? Uh, the antenna tuners are the uh, parts of the system that basically are able to tune, right? Antennas according to the frequency that you're using. Uh, the better you do the job, uh, the better your connection will be. Basically, what this does uh, overall antenna tuning is that you need to guess how you're using your phone to be able to uh, tune the antennas accordingly. So it's different if you have your phone sitting on top of the table, open environment. If you're using your phone right next to your ear right. on a, doing a call or playing a game, right? On landscape mode and using your two fingers. So you tune the antennas according to how you're using the device. Now with this AI, we're now using AI, uh, basically a trained network that uh, we put to work here to better guess how you're using your phone. So before that, it was on uh, algorithms. So engineers decide, okay, based on these conditions, I'll guess that you're using the phone in your ear or just watching a movie. Now we are using AI for that, and we're able to enhance the prediction on how you're using the phone by 30%. That means that you can tune now better than antennas, and that means that you're using either less power to connect to the network, or you're connecting better, enhancing your overall performance over three efficiency. So yes, four nanometers, it's it's crazy, right? We're now going into a few atoms here. I know. <laughs> the, the distance from transistors, but many of the enhancements that we're seeing now 
it's coming from other parts of the design, uh, from the basement bandwidth, but also a lot of on the, that on the RF front end. I think AI, well, I can speak all day about those enhancements, but a lot of the innovation is coming on that part more than the, uh, I'll say, process node to be able to get all right. these enhancements that we check. Again, talking about 10 gigabits per second without draining your battery. Right? You might drain your uh, data plan, right? If you're not, uh, okay, if you're limited with a few speed tests, but definitely you still need to get your all day battery life. Otherwise, these things will not sell. And a lot of the innovation is coming from the system approach. Again, all the tweaks and um, tricks that you can play from the basement to the antenna. Very cool. The other thing that caught my eye is that you're supporting a new millimeter wave band. Uh, was it 49 gigahertz? Am I right? Or 39? 41. Yes, that's the band. It's called N259 in, again, 5G specs lingo. That's insanely high. Like for antennas to be able to tune to both of these in one unit is kind of incredible to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work, right? Engineering work to be able to, again, not just these two. Basically, we're now supporting all the uh, key bands, all the bands for millimeter wave uh, on mobile. So we're talking about 24, 26, 28, 39, and 41 hertz. And all these things need to fit like into a very, very small module that uh, will fit into your phone that will not drain the battery. Uh, a lot of constraints that, I don't know, it's a bit of magic. So my kudos to all the engineers, not just Qualcomm, but overall in the industry that's solving these problems because uh, it's looked like magic. <laughs> My big question was actually going to be about the AI uh, band tuning. So I'm glad that you went extremely deep into that. Uh, but the the battery uh, power usage point actually just does get me to one final question of, you know, this is designed to be used in so many different applications. Does Does the capabilities or how it can be tuned change if you are in a situation like a laptop with a large power supply versus... Uh, you know, a hotspot that has a small power supply, but fewer battery demands versus a phone, which is, of course, typically always battery constrained. Does does that change the modem's behavior or is it really set to work the exact same way in all of the applications? No, it, yes, it can change. Particularly, you can change the design of things when you are not uh, as restricted as uh, you are in terms of space or battery life with a phone. And I'll use another example that can provide more light on this, uh, fixed wireless access. What is fixed wireless access? Is using the uh, cellular infrastructure, 5G infrastructure in this case, to not provide internet connectivity to phones and mobile devices, but to homes, basically in small businesses, basically replacing or providing an alternative to fiber or cable yeah. to provide fixed internet, as the, as the word says. Uh, if when you have this, it's called the CPE, customer premise equipment. Basically, you think about this as the router that's sitting in your home that connects your home to the 5G network and the backhole that it connects you to the internet. Uh, mm -hmm. In that case, you are not constrained to battery that things is plugged to the wall. Uh, you're not as constrained as a space, right? Because those can be larger devices. Uh, in that sense, you can uh, enhance the uh, transmit power. From your device and that enhances the coverage and performance because many times when you're talking about coverage for example coverage is limited not by the ability of the cell tower to talk to your device and many times that's not the problem the problem is from the device talking back to the cell tower because the device is the one that's limited in power overall 
and, and, and size. When you have a larger form factor like these fixed wireless access CPEs, uh, we can put more antennas. Particularly, we have modules for millimeter wave that are designed particularly for these larger form factors. You can increase power. And with that sense, you can effectively increase the coverage of the millimeter wave network. We have tested even with the earlier platforms here, a millimeter wave going up to five, 6.5. The latest we tested what over seven kilometers. Wow. Uh, for fixed wireless access uh, using a millimeter wave. Something again, so it, it, you can extrapolate, right? The smartphone experience to fixed wireless access, for instance. Because as you said, Andrew, once you relax some of the constraints in terms of power limitations or battery and space, uh, you can do some other tricks that now are enabling uh, the use of medium wave to provide, uh, again, an alternative to cable or fiber, uh, something that you will not be able to uh, do in this constraint form factor. And same when you take these to uh, IoT devices or to PCs, uh, the less constraints that you have in terms of form factors and battery, uh, you can play some tricks to improve performance overall and coverage and power efficiency. Are we talking about line of sight at seven kilometers? Uh, that was mostly line of sight. Of course, at seven kilometers, you cannot see yeah. the base station. So it's, uh, but Presumably, we have an antenna that's pointed at the tower, right? We're not, you're not relying on the internal antennas of the router inside the building, right? It's not necessarily directing. So there were some tests. In fact, one uh, analyst, Mike Tillander, did some testing on this. Even when he was testing several kilometers away with antennas pointing in the other direction, 180 degrees, which what you're supposed not to do, to get this connectivity, <laughs> uh, he was still getting sometimes gigabit connections because wow. again, the, the, a lot of the informing and been tracking uh, capabilities on this, again, newest generation of millimeter wave devices for mobile uh, now can use reflections. So you take advantage of reflections on buildings or uh, other surfaces to be able to connect. So yes, seven kilometers, of course, you ideal is line of sight, but that allows, but operators will not deploy uh, cell towers for fixed wireless access seven kilometers or four miles. Of course not. <laughs> the, uh, for, for the space So that allows you basically to have high degree of confidence that let's say one or two kilometers, one or two miles, uh, you will be able to have connectivity, gigabit connectivity on even on non-line of sight scenarios. Wow, this is pretty impressive. Well, I think that kind of wraps things up with us, Ignacio. I want to really thank you and appreciate you being here. Uh, thanks for coming and being on the show. Thanks so much, Miriam, for having me. Thanks, Andrew, uh, for the conversation. Of course. Nice to talk to you anytime. Absolutely. Well, that was informative, right, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I honestly did not expect us to get like this deep into the rabbit hole. That I mean, I'm a nerd, so I could have even gone deeper. Like, we didn't talk about the new millimeter wave antenna that they have. That I mean, we there was some mention about it in terms of like its ability to tune to uh, higher frequencies. But I just thought it was really interesting. And it's uh, how can you get into that and not go super nerdy? It just it kind of is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Which is why I was like, I'm not quite sure when they said, you know, when you want somebody from Qualcomm on, I was like, for sure. But I'm like, I looked at the news and I'm like, it's a modem. Like, how how exciting can we get here? But yeah, Ignacio made it happen, dude. Like, that guy, that was pretty impressive. I mean, it's stuff you want you want to have in the back of your mind. You want to be aware of how it works, even though you may not, you're not going to deploy it the next time you talk about like a new phone coming out. Nah, for sure. 
So our first topic is, I mean, beyond Qualcomm, is some Xiaomi news. You saw that concept phone with a quad curve? Uh, how could I miss it? <laughs> I know. It curves on the left and right, like we've seen curved displays, like waterfall displays before, but it also curves the top and bottom, which Huawei kind of started doing with the P40 series, like the P40 Pro and P40 Pro Plus, although they never really went all the way down to the top and bottom edges. I think this is a gimmick. I mean, naturally, it's cool. It makes it look like there's no bezel and it's an exercise in coolness, but we don't like curved displays, do we? Well, that's the funniest thing is uh, we just got, I just got done reviewing the Galaxy S21 lineup and overwhelmingly people were like, I'm glad that the lower models are flat screens. I don't care about the curves. And even at that, you know, the, the S21 Ultra is not even nearly as curved as this concept phone, and it's curved on all four sides. Right. Yeah. You know, the last super curved phone I used was the Moto Edge and Edge Plus, and it's just not for me. Like, also the Mate 30 before that. It's interesting, because the mm -hmm. Mate 30 Pro last year was more curved than the Mate 40 Pro this year is. Like, the Mate 40 Pro this year is, is more in line with an S21 or like an Oppo Find X2 Pro, which is the same display as the OnePlus 8 Pro. But it's not it's annoying but not horrible. Whereas the Edge and Edge Plus and the Mate 30 Pro last year, I was just like, no. Like it's going 50% into the edge of the phone. And when I'm like framing shots on the, you know, with the camera, I get a very different picture even because like I've, I kind of forget yeah. that I have this top and bottom, right? And that's assuming that the hand and palm rejection software actually works oh. properly, which yeah. I think that's probably the biggest problem. It, I don't think people hate the design. People hate that the, you know, no amount of palm rejection software is going to be able to get, you know, a 100% accuracy in not taking your touches, especially when Android uses side in gestures. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bad combination. It's just a bad combination, I agree. I mean, I don't want to, you know, be like upset about the fact that Xiaomi is trying this. I think this idea of having displays that follow a contour is something that could be cool. I did like that the Edge and Edge Plus had a mode where you double tapped, you know, on the on this little, weird little area on this edge and it would like reduce back to like, mm -hmm. basically it would look flat and it wouldn't take touch on the sides and it would black it out. I liked having that option, but the problem is not all apps supported it. And most importantly, the camera app didn't support it, which was, I felt, the area where I really needed it most because I felt like an incomplete viewfinder. So it's just, I mean, I suppose that with the right software, this could be interesting. But then if you never use that feature, right, if you always have it so that it <laughs> doesn't display anything on the edges, then you're paying for this really fancy display and not really using it. So I don't know. I think just like, give us flat screens, like, you know. Yeah, I uh, the uh, the manufacturers seem to understand people's desire to to not have big notches, and you know they made a lot of those kind of calls, and they reduced a lot of the curves, and then they just went back to it. Although I'm, I you know what Xiaomi does in a concept phone is not necessarily indicative of the whole network. I mean, that's kind of what I like about Xiaomi. They make these ridiculous concept phones, but then reality turns out to be pretty, pretty exciting, like comparatively. Like uh, the Mi 11 uh, related news here, it was finally launched in Europe. It's the first global version. Uh, the Mi 11 was the first Snapdragon 888 phone announced just before the 
New Year, and it was out in China, of course. Now it's available in Europe. I actually have a review unit incoming, so I'm really excited to get my hands on that because believe it or not, Andrew, I'm not the big fry that you are at Digital Trends, so I did not get an S21 review unit yet. Uh, Samsung's mm. being super stingy again, so I don't have an S21 or an S21 Ultra yet. I'm waiting for it. I suppose I could go buy one, but I just don't feel like spending that kind of money. They sure are expensive. And I don't have an S21 Plus. They are not sending those out. So Yeah, they're not sending those to anybody, I think. They did the same last year, right? Mm-hmm. Same with the Note 20. They only sent out the Note 20 Ultra. It was really interesting. Well, there was probably a good reason for that. Well, you and I know why. I mean, I think everybody who's listening to this podcast knows why. It's, it's just kind of like funny, though, that... They knew going into it, right? But I think with the S21 Plus, it's not the same. It's not a bad... I don't think it's a bad phone. Whereas no. the Note 20 is just a bad phone. For the money, it was a bad phone. So this is the weird thing about about Xiaomi. So yes, I appreciate their concepts. Um, I barely use their phones. I, I just don't have an international flair in that same way where I'm I'm chasing after getting these. Well, you so, don't have time, right? You don't have... It's like for me, I have a bit more play there because... You know, when I, I write most of the phone reviews for hot hardware, but they've got an S21. Like, I don't have to worry about that. Somebody's sure. going to get them one, right? So I try to focus on other things, yeah. And so, I, I mean, as is usually the case, you look at the Mi 11 spec sheet and it's just, it's just bonkers. And I actually even think the design looks quite nice. I think it's a really good looking phone and it is, you know, uh, pretty affordable. And I mean, it's the same phone as they launch in China. There's nothing new here. It's just that it's finally out in a global version. And I, I link to Andy's story because, you know, Andy's mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> and uh, this does have a curved edge, but not as dramatic as this concept, right? No. And um it, which means it'll actually work properly, which is fantastic. <laughs> and yeah. also, unlike the concept, it has ports, which is good because they're oh, doing... Right. The concept doesn't have ports. You're right about there's that. There's no ports. And so, you know, or the buttons. Mi 11... It's it's funny that the, the Mi 11 is just like, oh, yeah, of course it has 55-watt wired charging and 50-watt wireless charging, which is just <laughs> insane because, you know, those are double what the, what the S21 series offers. Well, that's the thing about Chinese phones. Like, you know, I've got the, the P40 Pro Plus. That's what, seven months old now. And that came with 40 watt, both wired and wireless. Get this, it even has 27 watt reverse wireless charging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like in this US universe we are in of Samsung versus Apple, we sometimes forget where the rest of the world has had it. Like, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, when most people, well... Yeah, I, let's just say most people uh, have an iPhone that charges at at most 15 watt wired. Mm -hmm. There's there's just nobody. They they just there's no desire there. And even Samsung, we saw backtracked after you know trying 45 watt um, USB C PD, dropped it this generation and just went back to 25 watt across the board. Now the, the kind of weird thing there was that their 45 watt charging was like 5% faster than 25 watts. So there was just something <laughs> weird there, but yeah. I go, I go back and forth on this because I hate proprietary charging standards, but yeah. also I love plugging in my OnePlus phones and having them just blast to 50% in 15 minutes. Which is why I like what they did with the AT which has, you know, the 65 watt charging with the dual cell where it charges in parallel two cells. And the brick for that 
also supports PD up to 35 or 45 watts, yeah. right? So you can use that single brick, which is pretty significant in size, but you can use it to charge your laptop, like a MacBook Air M1 will do, it needs 30 watt for PD to charge. So it'll charge that perfectly fine. And then it'll also charge your OnePlus AT perfectly fine. I just feel that OnePlus needs to put wireless charging on the entire like flagship line, like nine this year and the eight last year should have had it and the AT should have had it. The only reason I have an 8 Pro as my main phone right now is because I want wireless charging and it's the only OnePlus that has it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And because it's a big phone, I don't like the size of the 8 Pro. Like, I want I want an 8 or an AT ideally with wireless charging. That would be any of the cameras from the 8 Pro because the, the Sony IMX689 is a great sensor and I want to see that again. So I'm kind of hoping that the OnePlus 9 series this year and this is my segue. <laughs> nice. The OnePlus 9 this year, the series, not just the 9 or the 9 Pro, have both have wireless charging and a very similar camera system. Maybe one camera missing from the 9 versus the 9 Pro, but that we have, you know, some commonality there so that we can choose the size and the cost without too many compromise because I felt that the 8 and 8T were compromising too much on wireless charging and the camera system being a rehash of what we had since the 7 since the 7 Pro actually mm-hmm. so you know and it's not a bad sensor the IMX586 is solid but it's old now it's like 3 years old and you know the bigger issue has been the the secondary sensors as well. I actually oh, haven't yeah. had a problem with the primary sensors but the secondary sensors and the selfie cameras have been uh uh, horrible in the in the last OnePlus phones. Totally, and then it's a step down going from like the 7T that had a telephoto, even though it wasn't optically stabilized, it had a telephoto and it went down to this like terrible macro on the 8. Like like the fact that Useless. you could do macro, like it had a macro mode on the 7T using the ultra wide because the ultra wide had autofocus, remember that? Mm-hmm, like the S21 Ultra has. Exactly, and so the, the nice thing about that is that you actually can, have autofocus for a macro like how can anybody first of all two megapixels is not going to cut these days but on top of that it's the biggest the biggest error here is the lack of autofocus on a macro like how can you get a macro shot without autofocus i don't get it Uh, yeah that's a that's a bigger problem just don't put the macro camera in the in the phone and you're done like I understand in markets like India, which I have a lot of listeners and followers on my YouTube channel, you know, they they at their price point, like the mid-range, like four hundred, five hundred dollar phones, like the Nord and stuff, that that world that they are primarily like focused on, having the multiple camera is a selling point, even though the cameras are not that great. And I'm kind of even though I'm not happy with it, I'm kind of willing to concede that maybe you can get away with having a crappy two megapixel non-autofocus macro on that phone. But what I don't understand with BBK Group specifically, and they've done this also with the Reno phones on the on the Oppo side, is why they used to have telephotos on these phones and now they don't. You know what I'm saying? Like they removed right. something that was actually useful and did a good job, relatively speaking. And they put like just literally garbage in its place, right? And yeah, even though, like you said, the telephoto wasn't necessarily the best or it wasn't optically stabilized. It had, you know, whatever, a narrow aperture. Like you could at least use it a third of the time or a half of the time. You weren't going to shoot yeah. at night with it, but you're you're replacing it with a camera that you literally should not switch to. Yeah, it's a camera that I call them sticker cameras. It might as well just be a sticker in the back of the phone. 
call it a day. <laughs> that's a good, that's good. I haven't heard that. <laughs> you you can use that in your writing. You're allowed. It's cool. So the OnePlus Nine Pro is rumored to have Hasselblad branding. The last time I saw Hasselblad branding on a device that was mobile was the Moto Mod. Oh yeah. Remember that for the Moto whatever the Z2 I think at the time or the original Z whatever the first mod phone and I cringed because I got the device and it was terrible. It was horrendous even though it looked so cool and it was exactly the kind of thing we wanted from Moto mods and then yeah. it was it was bad even by standards of Motorola's cameras at that time which yeah. were also very bad. It was basically a generic, off-the-shelf, you know, point-and-shoot camera module, optics and sensor, which were very crappy to start with. And then I can't even believe that Hasselblad put their branding on there. So I'm a little concerned. Like, look, I think the 8 Pro camera system is pretty solid. And I hope that 9 Pro improves on that and that the Hasselblad branding is just, you know, kind of icing on the cake, you know, maybe like like Zeiss on some Sony phones and, yeah. and Nokia phones and like Leica on Huawei phones really means something. Like they actually are working with Leica extensively. I went on a Huawei sponsored trip to Germany back in the days when pre-COVID in the before days. And it was amazing to see how much they work together. Like... Leica is really benefiting from all this AI, machine learning, uh, computational photography stuff. And Huawei is really benefiting from like using glass lenses versus plastic lenses, you know, better autofocus mechanisms and OIS mechanisms that are created custom for them by Leica. Like that stuff made sense to me. But I'm worried that this is just more of a kind of licensing the Hasselblad name. It doesn't mean that the OnePlus 9 Pro camera is going to be poor. I Mm -hmm. think that based on what we saw on the 8 Pro, this could be a decent setup, right? Yes, but my my problem is, you know, you you so I I immediately started thinking about Leica and Huawei, which is in the positive column. But then I I had totally forgotten that you know Zeiss has been stamped on the back of every <laughs> Sony phone for a decade, and Sony's cameras have been trash, universally not good for the money. And we're talking about a company that we uh, OnePlus that we just said likes to put sticker level cameras on the back of their phones (laughs) and so you you just assume i mean i don't think it's being too cynical to assume that this is just branding until it's proven otherwise yeah and i mean if it is that's fine like i'm okay with it as long as it delivers something better than the 8 pro did as long as it's you know at least competitive with an iphone 12 or an s21 I'll be happy. I'm not expecting OnePlus to deliver the best camera system, whereas like I expect mm-hmm. that from Apple and Google and, and Huawei, right? And so I'm going into it that way. But I think that this is exciting in a way because maybe this will break the mold. Like I think that the last two generations of Sony phones, ever since the Xperia 1 and then the 5 and then the 1 Mark 2 and the 5 Mark 2 and then the Xperia Pro and the upcoming 1 Mark 3, at least the rumors that we saw last week, I think that Sony, even though they're not quite there yet, is really finally trying and understanding that Mm -hmm. their alpha business is a separate thing and they're not going to cannibalize it. You know what I'm saying? Because the way you can tell that is because they're finally actually putting good sensors and lenses in their phones. Like before the Xperia 1, they've been making most OIS lens and sensor systems for other manufacturers and never had one in their own phones. Yeah, They finally put OIS in with the one. So for the last two years, on paper, hardware-wise, I think what they're delivering is solid. And I wouldn't be surprised, like the T-Star coding on the Xperia 1 Mark II and Mark 
and 5 Mark II is real. Like, it does reduce glare. You've shot with an iPhone 12 Pro, right? You know oh, how many course. little, like, diamond-shaped crap you get when you shoot at night. Well, that's not the case with these these T-Star lenses. And so I believe that there is some goodness going on there with the Zeiss partnership. But at the same time, Sony's uh, computational photography chops is lacking. And if you go in manual mode with their special alpha app, right? Like the camera app that they have that mimics an alpha mm-hmm. camera, you can actually shoot some really great photos, but you have to be in the mindset of a professional photographer, right? And that's not the average person, right? The average person wants to use a basic camera app and just like match the button and get something good like you see on Pixel or on iPhone, right? And they should be able to do both. And it doesn't. And that's the problem. And I think that's where they're lacking. They don't have the expertise of the mashing where it does all the computational stuff for you, you know? But that's also, I mean, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I I feel like that's probably where OnePlus has the most room to grow. You don't Correct. have to have Hasselblad, you know, printed on the back. You don't have to have the same 108 megapixels um, large sensor that other companies are using. You know, I was even taking some like many really good photos with the OnePlus 8 uh, and like it, it was it was an 8T. Yeah. Or, yeah. 8T. It was fine. But it's fine. And you know what else is fine? It's even more impressive is the Nord, the original Nord has OIS, has basically the same camera system as the 8 and 8T essentially. And for the price, that was a ridiculously good camera system, I think. Uh, I mean, you're going to say there is the Pixel 4a, right? That kind of kills all that. But Pixel 4a is, in my opinion, not in the same league in terms of performance. (laughs) Even if it's a good, solid all-rounder, if you're the kind of people that we are that use flagships all day long, you want something with an 8-series Snapdragon or at least a 765G or something, right? But that, I mean, that just gets to the point that, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways to enhance the camera. It's obviously easier to market, you know, more cameras, Hasselblad branding, whatever. It's just, it seems like OnePlus does have room to grow in their their processing and their computational photography. And just clearly from the last few generations, just having the latest Snapdragon ISP in there, like it helps, but you still mm-hmm. have to manipulate it and you still have to put your own, you know, touch on it. Yeah. And it's funny to me, you know, because you probably don't see this, Andrew, because again, you mostly focus on North America, but I play with a lot of Oppo phones and their cameras are great. Mm. So it's not like BBK doesn't have the know-how. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like the Find X2 Pro last year was one of the best camera systems of 2020. Of course, it didn't matter in our market, but trust me when I say it was essentially a OnePlus 8 Pro on steroids, right? That's that phone what it is. It's lacking wireless charging, but it has a Periscope 5X telephoto instead of the 3X telephoto. Mm. But the guts of the phone, even the design of the phone, like you can see their sister phones. They're they're designed simultaneously, the OnePlus 8 Pro and the Find X2 Pro. Yet the Find X2 Pro takes even better photos. And I don't understand that. Maybe BBK Group is consciously on purpose keeping their best camera systems for Oppo. I don't know. Like in terms of software. Yeah, that seems unnecessary considering, you know, how little overlap and market there is there. Like you take a Reno phone, which is their mid-range line, and like I've got the Reno 5 Pro 5G coming in. We talked about it with eSOM last show. And, you know, it's going to perform better than a OnePlus Nord, guaranteed, like the regular Nord. And yet it's, you know, it's the same kind of phone. Like it's BBK $500 phone, you know? Right. So 
I don't get it. Like Oppo mm. has really done a good job. And Xiaomi, oh my God, Xiaomi has gone from like meh to wow in imaging in the last two years. Yeah, I should so. actually like strive to get a Mi 11 in. <laughs> You're convincing me. I mean, look, I think that even if you don't review them, it's perfectly acceptable for you to request them and try them out and have them in your staple so you can go like, oh, look, this is a good, fair comparison, you know? Sure, yeah, absolutely. You could mention them as comparison. You could say next time, like when you review the OnePlus 9 Pro, right? We're all going to review it. So when mm-hmm. you read it, you can say, well, compared to the Mi 11, this is actually pretty damn great. And the Mi 11 is another one of those phones that they're not going to say no to you. Come on. If they give me a, one, a Mi 11, they're going to give you a Mi 11. But uh, there's another item in here that I didn't include in the topics that's OnePlus related. I saw a news item about OnePlus making a selfie camera that fits in the bezel there's patents or something. It's a rumor. It's not. It's not a fact. But there is a, a rumor or leak or something of a OnePlus front-facing selfie camera that's super tiny and in the kind of like the black area of the top bezel of the phone. You know how an OLED phone today has a small bezel on top and bottom, and then sure. even thinner bezels on the left and right, especially if it's curved. That area is unused, basically. And sometimes has the speaker slit in there, right? Mm-hmm. The earpiece. Imagine in that area making a tiny, tiny hole and have a tiny, tiny camera. And apparently they're potentially working on that, which would mean that it's, and apparently it's a cost thing. It would be cheaper than having a hole punch. Oh, okay, right. But immediately my engineer mind goes into, oh my God, tiniest sensor of all time, crappy photos, right? That's going to be like, you know, it, whatever 1990s like a uh, spy uh, pen cap camera level quality <laughs> i mean probably not as bad but the problem is that the pixels are going to be tiny and low light's going to suck and we don't know this but here's my again my engineer mind thinking i'm like what if it's a periscope lens like what if the hole in the front oh. is tiny but it actually has a prism in the back below the display and then projects that into a real sensor that's mounted s- sideways just like a periscope lens but most of the camera is actually under the display, you know? No, that's actually a, a very interesting idea. I, I actually hadn't thought about that, especially because Periscope zoom cameras on the back of phones, you know, they were they require so much space. Yeah, well, this would be a miniaturized version of that without any of the OIS, like optical stabilization, sure. no autofocus, because most front cameras, I mean, some high-end phones like the S21, but like the Huawei phones have autofocus on the front facing camera, which is nice for portraits and stuff, but you don't necessarily need it. So I'm thinking like they could make something with like an eight or 10 or 12 megapixel sensor that would be a periscope miniature, like a, even smaller than what we've seen so far. And it sits under the display and pokes out like the hole pokes out right above in the bezel. And there's actually no electronics on that part. It's just the light path, right? So I'm of two minds on this because I... I lament how bad front-facing cameras are. They always are. (laughs) But then at the same time, I don't take that many selfies, but I think it's because the front-facing cameras are so bad and I'm someone that notices photo quality. (laughs) Well, I think that's changing a little bit. You know, we're seeing that with the folding phones where you can see yourself take a photo with the main camera. Favorite feature, the the Moto Z, or sorry, Moto Z, uh, Moto Razr. Yeah. And also, I think you can do it with the Z Fold 2. You can, yep. And then there is uh, the the Mate X, I mean, the whole folding phones from Huawei. And then there is uh, another, oh, the Zen phones, right? The, the, they had the flip cam, the Zen Phone mm-hmm. 6, Zen Phone 7 Pro. They have this ability for you to use the main camera as your 
uh, selfie. And I think that's where we're headed slowly. But I think that you're right. Most selfie cams are not that good. Well, ultimately, even though you can't frame yourself very well, you are often far, far, far better off trying to turn the phone around backward and use the volume key to take seven photos and just grabbing, editing, cropping the one, you know, that's best. And your photo is going to look so much better than the one you frame properly, but is with the front facing camera and is therefore trash. 100%. Maybe we shouldn't get back to the little mirror on the back. You remember that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would be dorky, but... Well, maybe the mirror finish can be so shiny around the camera pod, just the camera pod, that you can use that as a mirror. And it, it wouldn't look weird. Like, it wouldn't look cheap, right? Because it just you can just frame that way. And just give me a, give me a dedicated, like, hardware button on the back that makes it easier to hit, you know, to take your yeah. selfies. I don't know. This, the selfie cameras, because people are so allergic to notches and large camera cutouts, um, smartphone companies were like, well, you, you said you don't want notches, so tough shit. Here's one bad camera. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I don't know what the problem with selfie cameras. It's like everybody knows that selfie cameras are important, yet somehow they just don't put the effort into them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And even on the S, uh, S21 Ultra, which, you know, has that 40, meg 40 megapixel camera that does four to one binning and has autofocus and anything but good light, it's bad. I mean, it's terrible. Even when it triggers night mode, it doesn't matter because your hand shakes. It's um, you know, it's good in daylight, but otherwise, uh, it's yeah. bad. But you know, every now and then I take a selfie, like with a phone I'm reviewing and I'm just like actually surprised at like how pedestrian the specs are on that front camera and the result that comes out. And it's not like, I'm not saying this is like a random occasional thing. Whereas I'm just saying that there are some phones that just do well with their selfie cameras, mm -hmm. relatively speaking, consistently. Even though the specs are not that exciting. I can't off the top of my mind remember the last one that I did. I think it was one of the new motos that was announced like right around CES. I reviewed one of those and I was like, wow, this is this selfie camera doesn't suck. Like it's not it's not great, but it's like consistently better than average. Right. And coming from Moto, that was like, what the hell is going on here? But my point is that I think it's possible. I think it's just something that a lot of companies just don't focus on, pardon the pun. You know, like they just, yeah. they just don't care. And I think that needs to change. They're busy putting two megapixel macro cameras on the back of their phone. Yeah, the sticker cams, yeah. the depth sensors, the black and white video sensors. Remember those cameras that are only used for video to do night photography? Mm-hmm. It's like, what the hell? Well, that does actually just quickly get back to the Pixel 4a, which... Uh, even though it also has a very bad sensor, it takes really good selfies, especially for the money. And that's just a very, you know, you get one basic camera on the front, one basic camera on the back, but it, it punches dramatically above its weight because of the processing. Well, that's the thing, right? I think this is where Google has the adventure still, but they really need to step up their, at least their rear sensor game. Like, yes, you know, I'm dying to see a solid rear camera from google and so far no and this is why this year i couldn't use the pixel 5 as my main phone for the f like well i guess the pixel 4 xl was where i dropped out and i went to mm. OnePlus because for me the problem with the pixel 4 and 4xl was that i couldn't use fingerprint id and a lot of my apps don't support the android face id right mm -hmm. and i just it was just annoying and i hate to see that massive forehead and no chin and 
I didn't want a telephoto. I want an ultra wide. So, I mean, I get it. The telephoto is nice. I like it, but I prefer an ultra wide before I have a telephoto. If ideally I want all three. So I dropped on the four and four XL to the OnePlus 8 Pro. And then I didn't switch to the five, the Pixel 5, simply because, again, it's too small of a phone for me. Huh. I love, I love the size, actually. I need a little bit bigger than I need. I need OnePlus 8T is kind of perfect size for me. Hmm. And also, there was just enough there that wasn't quite up to what I, my, my expectations were. Like, fast, I need faster charging now that I'm used to a minimum of 30 watt. And I don't know. It's a, just a number of little things. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I think the Pixel 5 is a fantastic phone. Like, if they made a 5XL, I would have probably gone on. Like, a slightly bigger 5 would have been perfect for me. In that sense, the 4A 5G is the best phone, in my opinion, from Google this last year. But without wireless charging and water resistance, the water resistance is not as critical. But without wireless charging, I feel like I can't go there. Yeah, I could live with the 5. I mean, I'm not currently using it. I guess that tells you what you need to know about Uh-oh. that. But <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I could live with it. Uh, I, I like so many aspects of it, but... I just, uh, in the same way that you wish there was a 5XL, I wish there was a 5 Pro. I, I would, I just, I want, I want the one that's $200 more that's nicer. Okay, yeah, I'm on board with that too. Like the flagship and has an 800 series chip in it, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, I get it. And want, you know, and has just a slightly better display because this display is like good, but not like... Look, I've been using the S21, or even before that, it wasn't as good as the S20's display, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. No, I, I think Google, like, I think I understand what Google did, and I think they did the right, they made the right decisions for the business. They, they don't know how to make flagships, is that the reality? So yes. make a good mid-ranger, awesome. I still feel the Pixel 5 is overpriced for what it is, because you're buying millimeter wave whether you want it or not, and you're paying for it. I also think that the 4A 5G is the better, is the better choice. If you can live without wireless charging and wireless, this is absolutely 100% the same freaking phone almost. So save your money. Yeah, that's the weirdest thing. Like the 4A 5G could have just been the 5 and then make a slightly higher end phone and call it the 5 whatever. Yep. You know, that that's the, it's the weird, you know, jigsaw. <laughs> and you have the headphone jack, which is no matter what, it's still nice to have. I don't know. I think I need to be higher hand than that. So I went 8 Pro and probably going to go 9 Pro again this year with OnePlus. But uh, hey, speaking of phones with crappy cameras, but that overall are pretty decent, I mentioned it last week on the show, but I finally received a review unit of the Blade X1 5G, which is a ZTE phone that is no ZTE branding on anything. Not the box, not the phone, not the software, not the manual. That seems smart, to be honest. Yeah, it's pretty smart. But I thought it was very interesting when I was unboxing it. It is a $384 phone for Visible, the Verizon. Verizon prepaid. Yeah, and it's a 5G sub-6. It, it doesn't do millimeter wave, even though it's on a Visible, which is technically. Oh, that's surprising to me. Yeah, so it's. It's relying on the, whatever Verizon calls nationwide 5G, like relying on that network, but you can only get it through visible as far as I know. The phone came separate from the SIM for me and there was no visible mention in the box. So I think the phone might be unlocked if you can get your hands on it. (laughs) I see, interesting. I have to test that. I I, I wanted to test before the show, but I never got around to testing it. But the bottom line is you're looking at a phone that competes with, you know, the N10 5G from OnePlus, right? The Nord N10 5G or competes with that new Moto One uh, One 5G Ace or 
you know, any of these $400-ish 5G phones, sub-6 phones, even the Google Pixel 4 5G, because it's a bit more, but, you know, it's not a big stretch. The thing about this phone is that everything about it is surprisingly great, Andrew. I am kind of blown away. Like, every time I use it, I'm like, wait a minute, this, this is good. Except the cameras, but my standards are pretty high there, and I don't think there's any other than the Google Pixel phones, and maybe the Nord original, but that's more expensive. That's in the 500 plus. I don't think there's any phone in that area that's really that good on cameras. It's not horrible. It's usable, the cameras, but it's not what you're going to buy this phone for. I mean, the cameras for like basically anything in this price range that isn't the Pixel 4a are yeah. compromised. Correct. And that's exactly my experience here. So, but honestly, for 384, what really impresses me is the performance of this phone. It's a 765G. And even though the Nord N10 5G runs Oxygen OS, which is super fast and super slick, it doesn't keep up, even though it has a 90 hertz display as well, it doesn't keep up because of the Snapdragon 695G. It's really weird because I would almost recommend the ZTE phone over the, the Nord N10 5G, even though the Nord has a high refresh rate display and has Oxygen OS. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Also, the ZTE, this Blade phone has a stock Android. It doesn't have any skinning or anything. So That was my next question, because that was going to be, that's the problem, usually. Yeah, but it's not also super optimized. Like You can tell it doesn't run quite as fast as the original Nord, which has a 765G, or the Pixel 4a 5G, which is super slick on a 765G. So... It could be better, the software on this blade, in terms of optimization, but it's still faster than Oxygen OS on a 690, Mm. despite having a 60 hertz display. It's very weird. So I don't want to knock it for $384 and probably going to go down in price from there. Whether it's unlocked or not, I'm not sure, but you can definitely get it if you're a visible customer or if you want to go prepaid on Verizon. Pretty interesting that they're going sub-6 only, though, you know? Yeah, well, I would expect that from like Metro by T-Mobile. Right, but not from Verizon Virtual Operator, right? Yeah, especially, I don't know. I wonder, this seems like a a deal that was made when Verizon was also sourcing ZTE to build like 10 million hotspots for Verizon. And they were 100%. like, also, uh, we want to try to get rid of some of these um, these blade phones. So let's like yeah. just, we'll drop ship them directly to your visible customers. I think it's also available in India. So I think it's kind of like we're, we're getting kind of like a, a phone that is built to a price point to start with. And, you know, NVIDIA being super competitive, you actually get a lot for your money. And I think that's what we're seeing here, although the cameras could be better. But, like, it has all the things that Moto is missing all the time, like NFC and stuff. Like, it's cool. It's 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 not a sucky phone. And I just was really surprised by that. Yeah, that's actually, I think Motorola is the good uh, and interesting comparison because, like, the higher-end specs, uh, Moto G Power is 350, right? Yeah, and it doesn't have 5G at all. And, or, yeah. Or a 765G chip, or enough RAM, or, I mean, like, go on, you know. Yeah, exactly. So. And no NFC, yeah. I mean, that's right. Even the higher-end spec one doesn't have NFC. No, even the stylus doesn't have NFC. You have to go to the, to the 5G phones to get NFC on uh, Moto. Which is insane. You know, it's like, I, I live in New York, and uh, I haven't used a Metro card in the subway in a year and a half. Exactly. Because I don't need, I don't know. It's just a thing. A few little things before we wrap up. Bullet, the people who make the cat phones, the rugged phones, as a British company. Spelled B-U-L-L-I-T. Correct. They're now licensing the Moto name. 
I don't think this is important, but I just thought it was interesting. So are we going to see rugged phones with Moto branding made by Bullet? I guess that's what we're going to see. That's the whole thing. And it's just kind of <laughs> weird because Motorola, it, it's always been confusing to people because Motorola, the brand, is different from Motorola Solutions and Motorola Mobility they already made different types of things and the things you would consider to be rugged Motorola things didn't come from Motorola Mobility, the people that make the Moto G play. Exactly. So it's very confusing. I guess this is still a market. Well, look, you know, I work at Burning Man. Like obviously it hasn't mm-hmm. happened this year. And, but the point is when I did go and work, we have Motorola radios, like two-way radios that we use for communicating. And I can imagine that this licensing deal makes it possible for Moto to sell rugged phones to that market, to those customers who are already buying their radios. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think is happening here. Hopefully this is more than um, Hasselblad on the back of your camera. And it's like Motorola has some sort of input. So there's not just complete trash going out with the Motorola name. I'm not sure how those contracts are, are structured. Yeah, I mean, Bullet makes pretty solid, like the cat phones are pretty great. Uh, They're a little overpriced, but actually that's a good thing because we're talking about selling to these big enterprise customers who like construction worker fleets of vehicles, like, you know, the Mm -hmm. kind of people like oil industry, you know, people who need rugged devices. And so they're willing to pay the premium, right? And they expect really high quality. And the Moto brand for two-way radios is like the brand. Like if you're going to be a fire department or something, you're going to have Moto radios, right? And having used them myself, I can tell you, like they're indestructible. Like you can take a sledgehammer at one of those radios and I'll continue working. Yeah. And in a world where so much of this kind of stuff with very small markets ends up being a race to the bottom and you end up just getting crap, uh, it's actually kind of reassuring that they're charging and getting real money for these rugged devices. Yeah. Like I don't know how much it costs, but I think I looked it up once, the model of radios that I use, and it's like a $700 radio. Yeah. Like without the battery, without the, the microphone thingy that attaches to it. Like it's just the, just the unit without the antennas on it either. Like it's crazy. In that world, right? In that universe, it makes sense to have Moto branded rugged phones made by Bullet who makes decent rugged phones. That's kind of all I can think of. Any thoughts on this announcement that Carl Pay's new company and brand, Nothing, is going to be making wireless earbuds as, as its first product? <sighs> <laughs> I can already feel the pain in your voice, Andrew. I mean, I, I, I think Carl is a really cool guy. I've you know spent a decent amount of time with him, and I think he's a very interesting person. For sure. I don't think that announcing that your company is making true wireless earbuds is necessarily the, the breakout um, headline grabber that you would go with. No. Um, because... Everybody makes true wireless earbuds, uh, and while much of like much of the market is crap, a lot of companies make really good ones. Yes, and OnePlus is one of those companies uh, where exactly. you know, Carl famously left. So you're competing with your old self, which is makes it double hard. Is that a good summary? Well, yes, but also. I think the bigger thing is that you're competing in a market where there's very little differentiation and it is a race to the bottom. Like it's a saturated market for sure. Like I mean, the number of pitches I get for true wireless earbuds. Oh, it's incredible. 
I have to say no to most of them because even though some of them might be gems, like, you know, that's the thing. I've noticed for a while I kept saying yes and I have literally a, a drawer full of them now. Yeah. And some of them were good, but they're such no-name brands that you don't really feel like you can recommend them. You're like, what's their customer service like? You know what I'm saying? What's their warranty like? And they all, I mean, it, and even above the level of like, you know, down at $30, you could get a, a million different earbuds and they're all clearly made in the exact same, you know, building Factory, and just have yeah. different, <laughs> that's the same thing. But even at $100, it's very generic and so hard to differentiate yourself. And obviously it's the big name players that are have been there for a long time that still make the best stuff. And it's like, so how are you going to differentiate with a company that is nothing right it's the no no branding <laughs> no um differentiation in bells and whistles it's all about just the experience there's not a lot of experience to be had there when like you know i the jabra 75 t's that i use are like they're just damn good earbuds and i'm not looking for anything else yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just mentioned it because I have to follow what Carl Pay is doing. The guy's of super course. interesting, and I've been trying to follow this. I don't even know, like, I need to figure out how to get in touch with these people so that I'm included in the first wave. And I think I'm just going to reach out to Carl directly since I have him on multiple channels and say, hey, can you make sure your PR people include me when you launch? Because, <laughs> you know... I'm sure that they'll reach out to you because Digital Trends is a pretty big pub, but that's the challenge right now. I'm just like, I want to be a part of it, but I don't know how I'm even going to be included, you know? So it's, it's fun. And it's clearly not for the, it's for, it's, it's for the future beyond the earbuds. Yes. It's just, it's very interesting because obviously Carl knows this market. He knows the lower cost, fan-driven, design-driven, you know, electronics market, but you know, things are a lot different today than when OnePlus was coming on the scene and innovating and being the one to push that a lot of these markets. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot more saturated, not just earbuds, but every bit of this consumer electronic accessory kind of area. For sure. The last news we have is Starlink, Elon Musk, SpaceX's crazy awesome satellite internet provider is finally now taking pre-orders. They're past, I mean, they're still in beta in a way, but they're until now you could go to their website, put your email address in and hope that you'd be picked as a beta tester. Now you can actually pre-order. And I'm very interested in this because as you know, I have a Volkswagen camper van and I do a lot of road trips. And mm -hmm. sometimes I'm in the middle of nowhere and even all my different hotspots on all the different carriers don't give me good signal. So I'm eager to get this just for travel, but from everything I've heard so far, it's not really optimized for that. It's really optimized for you live in the woods in the middle of nowhere and you need internet. And I've got a few people that I trust and know that have this already, and it's incredible. It's bonkers. Like forget satellite internet the way you used to know it from like Hughes networks or whatever, like DirecTV. This is... You know, like megabit speeds, reliable, super low latency with a tiny little dish that self-orients and is heated. So if it snows on it, it actually stays clear. It's very, very cool. And the equipment is not very expensive. It's $500 up front and then $100 a month. With reasonable latency too. With reasonable latency. And so I think 
this is the future. I think they're onto something here. And I just have to mention it because for those of you out there who do live in the boonies and are struggling with your internet and want something more liable, you should really investigate this a little further. So I've linked to a digital trend story about that. It's not, obviously, considering I live in Manhattan, I'm about the last person in the world who would <laughs> care about this personally, but it actually is is interesting. We spend a lot of time in the winter up in uh, up in Vermont snowboarding and, you know, just enjoying nature, especially this winter. And um, people up there do not have good, good internet. I mean, no. it's, it's funny that there are some communities that have um, like fiber to the neighborhood actually, and have insanely good internet, even in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. Um, but then a few miles down the road, it's DSL only, or, you know, if you really want to go rural, you have to choose between having internet or having, you know, the home and the land that you want. Right. And you're right. These old, uh, satellite internet providers, you're like, you're talking about like 500 millisecond latency if you're if you're lucky, which you know takes everything real time off the table, and they also just have you over a barrel with uh, data caps and everything like that. And my understanding is that this, does uh, Starlink have data caps? No, not that I know of. I'm pretty sure that your your traditional uh, uh, satellite providers had like ridiculously low data caps, like a uh, hundred gigabytes. Oh yeah, no. And the prices were insane. Like, I mean, they're, they're, this is less than what any satellite provider would charge before. And it's way better from, not from just the reviews I've read, but from actual people I know who you're using it right now in the field. They're saying it's a game changer. Like it's, it's, it's real. Like their feeling is five years from now, this will be common and everybody's going to be connected. And the the hope is that some combination of Starlink for people that are way the hell out there and then fixed wireless solutions with 5G for people that mm -hmm. are just kind of out there and just not in dense areas will like finally close that internet gap that is so, so serious still. I agree 100%. So that's why I'm excited. I had to include this because I'm like, you know, this is cool. Like we need this. And uh, I'm glad that it's slowly moving forward. And I'm looking forward to when they have a mobile solution that's designed to be mobile, because then I'm definitely going to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. will pay for it. Absolutely. For my road trip travels. Well, that's it for the show. Andrew, do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internets? Yes, of course, at uh, digitaltrends.com, or uh, I am always on Twitter uh, talking about something. <laughs> yeah, maybe technology, who knows? I have way too many tweets. At uh, Andrew Martinick, M-A-R-T-O-N-I-K. Are you also on Instagram? I am, under the same, uh, same handle, actually. Um, Instagram, on the other hand, is not technology at all <laughs> related. Um, <laughs> you'll, you'll see things from uh, New York and traveling and uh, right now lots of snow. Yeah, I saw that. Folks, you know where to find me. I'm at Tankerl on Instagram and Twitter. That's T-N-K-G-R-L. Think of Tankerl, the comic book character, but drop the vowels. That's where you want to go to discuss the podcast. Uh, hit me up and hit Andrew up. Hit us together up uh, if you want to discuss this podcast on Twitter. And then go to my Instagram to see pretty pictures of the phones I'm reviewing, pretty pictures taken with the phones I'm reviewing and all that good stuff. Lots of travel stuff when I travel again. 
And lots of old travel stuff from the before days. And then, of course, there's two YouTube channels to uh, check out. There's youtube.com slash mobiletechpodcast. That's the main channel for this show. So if you want to see some visual content to go alongside this audio, check it out. Unboxings and stuff of the devices that I'm talking about here on the show. And then there's a new channel that we're kind of trying to ramp up. It's going to be more like smart home and peripheral to mobile. And maybe like that's where we would review Starlink when we get it. And that's going to be youtube.com slash tech more please subscribe we need subscribers so go go there we're working up on the content for that we appreciate it if you check it out the podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com also on google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, pocket cast spotify pretty much everywhere good podcasts live you can find the show and please subscribe tell your friends same with all the youtube channels there's a donate link in the show notes if you want to donate and help out the podcast that helps me out helps us out it's great it's a paypal link check it out it's in the uh in the show notes appreciate any donations and of course i want to thank our sponsor audible audible has been with us since the early days and they're pretty awesome and they have a deal that will help you help us and help them so go to audibletrial.com slash mobile tech that's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech and you'll get a 30-day free trial and you get to keep keep a book at the end which i think is a pretty great deal audible is the number one platform for audiobooks if you love to read as much as i do but maybe uh, your eyes are tired or you want to listen to a book instead you know there are the platform for that so check it out audible is you know, where I get a lot of my content, especially on road trips, when I listen to books, it's fantastic. Some of the books are epic, like hours on end, and you can divvy it up into little chunks, just like reading a real book where you take breaks. I just love it. And then, you know, you've got like the authors reading their own books oftentimes. I just think it's pretty fantastic. So I was super stoked when they decided to become our sponsor, and they have been forever. If you want to help them and help us and help everyone involved, please consider clicking through if you're not already an Audible subscriber audibletrial.com slash mobile tech and thanks again andrew for being on the show and of course ignacio of qualcomm thanks andrew yeah thanks so much it was great fantastic we'll definitely have you on again at some point in the future and folks will have another show next week so stay tuned for that and until then cheers everybody this has been the mobile tech podcast with tank girl proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com you can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com